I'm Dr. Jeff Donovan, and you're listening to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the season finale of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. This is a recording from the live webinar we had on December the 14th. As you might know, every year I highlight the top 20 studies of the year gone by with a live public webinar. And so part one of the podcast, which you're listening to now, will highlight 11 of those studies, nine in androgenetic hair loss, two in alopecia areata, and part two of the podcast will highlight studies in telogen effluvium, scarring alopecia, and two additional topics. On this episode, you'll hear studies in androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. We'll begin by a very nice study by Q and colleagues looking at the relationship between androgenetic hair loss and metabolic syndrome. A meta-analysis taught us that patients with androgenetic hair loss are at a 3.5-fold increased risk of developing metabolic syndrome. A very nice study looks at nail-fold capillary changes in androgenetic hair loss. And patients with androgenetic hair loss have different types of capillaries in their nails compared to control patients. A fascinating study which reminds us that patients with androgenetic hair loss are at risk for various microvascular abnormalities. Two very nice studies, one by Sanabria and colleagues and one by Jimenez-Kahi and colleagues look at the blood pressure and heart rate changes in patients using oral minoxidil. Two very nice studies which remind us that oral minoxidil has pretty good cardiovascular side effect profile. Then we'll move on to three nice studies by Gupta and colleagues. One, comparing the relative efficacy of oral minoxidil, dutasteride, finasteride, topical minoxidil, and this very nice study telling us that dutasteride tops the list as the most effective treatment for androgenetic hair loss, followed by oral finasteride 5 milligrams, followed by oral minoxidil 5 milligrams. Very nice study which places these treatments in a treatment ladder in terms of efficacy. Gupta also published a nice study looking at what are the PRP parameters and patient characteristics by which we would expect the treatment to work best. Gupta puts forth several characteristics that seem to be associated with better outcomes. Women respond better than men. Having more treatments is better than having less treatments. Using a centrifuge that offers a double spin method is better. Activating PRP at the end of the procedure is better than not activating it. We'll take a look at Gupta's very nice study. And a very nice study looking at what happens when you increase the dose of oral minoxidil by one milligram. Gupta and colleagues teach us that by increasing the dose of oral minoxidil, you can expect an increase in hair density. You can also expect a very small increased risk of cardiovascular side effects and hypertrichosis. We'll take a look at that nice study. A nice study by Klein and colleagues looks at whether adding topical minoxidil really makes any difference if a patient is going to start oral minoxidil. Klein's study teaches us that probably just probably using topical minoxidil adds no benefit if the patient is going to use oral minoxidil. Small study, 117 patients, but pretty valuable information and intriguing information nevertheless. A very nice study by Liang and colleagues looks at microneedling compared to oral spironolactone 
in patients using topical minoxidil. An intriguing study of 115 patients that teaches us that the combination of microneedling and topical minoxidil is probably superior to microneedling and oral spironolactone in women with androgenetic hair loss. And finally, in the field of alopecia areata research, a very nice study by King and colleagues in the New England Journal looked at the use of baricitinib in treating advanced alopecia areata. This was the set of studies which led to the FDA approval of baricitinib for alopecia areata on June the 13th, 2022. This was a landmark day in the field of alopecia areata, but we'll take a look at Dr. King's very nice study, the BRAVE AA1 and BRAVE AA2 studies. And in this episode, we will conclude with a very nice study by Waskiel Bernat and colleagues, Lydia Runika's group in Poland, looking at endothelial dysfunction in patients with alopecia areata. A very nice study suggesting that patients with alopecia areata are at increased risk for endothelial dysfunction. And this data ties in very nicely with the growing body of data, which suggests that patients with alopecia areata are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. And so you're about to listen to the live recording from that December the 14th, 2022 webinar. This is part one. Enjoy this webinar. Thanks again. Welcome everyone to the top 20 studies of 2022. I'm Dr. Jeff Donovan. I'm a dermatologist specializing in the area of hair loss. This is an annual event we hold every year in December, which celebrates the top hair research studies of the year gone by. And today I'd like to review with you 20 wonderful studies from the 2022 calendar year, which have really changed what we do in the clinic and changed how we think about hair loss. This will be uploaded to our Donovan Medical YouTube channel at a later date, and the recording will also be on the Evidence-Based Hair podcast, wherever you receive your podcasts. There will be a question and answer session at the end of today's session. You can enter any questions you have in the Q&A box, and I will review them at the end. And we will begin. I'd like to review with you today nine studies in the area of androgenetic hair loss, two in the area of alopecia areata, three in the area of telogen effluvium and hair shedding, four in scarring alopecia, and two in other categories. But we'll begin first with studies in androgenetic hair loss. Androgenetic hair loss is also referred to as male balding and female pattern hair loss. This is a common type of hair loss affecting 30 to 40 percent of women by the age of 50 and 60 or 70 percent of men by the age of 60. And it's a type of hair loss which causes thinning in certain patterns. In women, it causes thinning in the center of the scalp, and in males, it causes thinning in the temples and the crown and then in the mid-scalp. A very nice study by Q and colleagues from February this year looked at the relationship between androgenetic hair loss and metabolic syndrome. So what is metabolic syndrome? Metabolic syndrome refers to this group of abnormalities that increase a person's risk for cardiovascular disease. And so metabolic syndrome comprises issues like high blood sugars, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and obesity. And those four things 
comprise metabolic syndrome. And we know that metabolic syndrome increases the risk of heart disease, heart attacks, stroke, atherosclerosis. And there's been good data accumulating over the past many decades suggesting that patients with androgenetic hair loss have an increased risk for metabolic syndrome and an increased risk for heart disease. This data is not new. A landmark study in 1972 by Cotton and colleagues showed that one of the most important factors predicting heart disease in males was diastolic blood pressure. But what factor was also on that list? Hair loss. Hair loss in males. And so we've realized for some time that hair loss is associated with heart disease. That's 1972, so that's 50 years ago. And so the question we're asking now is, are patients with androgenetic hair loss at risk for developing metabolic syndrome? Well, a very nice meta-analysis or summary of the literature in 2014 showed that indeed patients with androgenetic hair loss have an increased risk for metabolic syndrome. And Wu and colleagues suggested the risk was 2.7-fold. Carl Chang and colleagues in 2019 showed that the risk was about 2.59-fold. And now we have this very nice meta-analysis by Q and colleagues, 2022, showing an increased risk of metabolic syndrome of 3.46 in patients with androgenetic hair loss. So this was a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at the prevalence of metabolic syndrome in patients with androgenetic hair loss compared to controls. The authors reviewed 19 articles that met their inclusion criteria, including 1,342 patients with androgenetic hair loss and 1,189 controls. And so as I mentioned, their conclusion was that the increased risk of metabolic syndrome in patients with androgenetic hair loss was about 3.46-fold. But what's so interesting about this study is that when the data was looked at according to males and females, some very interesting findings came out. And that was specifically that females have a much greater increased risk of metabolic syndrome if they have androgenetic hair loss. And the risk was 7.34 in females compared to 3.08 in males. So there's a much closer association between metabolic syndrome and androgenetic hair loss in females. When the data was looked at in terms of early onset male balding versus typical onset male balding, the data showed that individuals with early onset androgenetic hair loss, these are our patients with hair loss in the teens and early 20s, that early onset male balding is associated with a greater increased risk of metabolic syndrome. So the conclusions here are that androgenetic hair loss is indeed associated with this increased risk of metabolic syndrome, this increased risk of high blood sugar, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and central obesity. And we know that these increase the risk for cardiovascular disease. So I think this study is so important. It's been 50 years now since we first appreciated this important relationship between hair loss and heart disease. And very rarely do we bring up the topic of metabolic syndrome with our patients with androgenetic hair loss. But I think that we clearly should. I think the data is pretty clear in these three meta-analyses that patients with androgenetic hair loss, whether male or female, have this increased risk of heart disease, high blood sugar, high blood pressure, 
high cholesterol, central obesity. And I certainly think that this is a really important subject for our hair loss medicine field to really look at in greater depth. And perhaps we do need screening guidelines for patients with androgenetic hair loss. Perhaps we do need to be talking about blood pressure in a hair loss appointment. Perhaps we do need to be talking about obesity, high cholesterol, high blood sugar. Perhaps we do need to be encouraging patients to exercise, eat healthy. Of course, there's only so much we can do during a typical appointment, given time constraints. But I think this subject area has gone largely ignored. And it has been 50 years since this relationship has been identified. And I think this study reminds us that there is a striking relationship between androgenetic hair loss and metabolic syndrome that really can't be ignored anymore. And I think it's time for our field to look at this in greater depth and propose some guidelines for hair loss practitioners. We move on now to a very nice study looking at nail fold capillary changes in patients with androgenetic hair loss. In our nail folds, we have blood vessels that can be easily identified with various magnifying devices. And this particular study showed that the nail fold blood vessels are altered in patients with androgenetic hair loss. And so this study builds upon other studies, including the one I just reviewed, showing that males and females with androgenetic hair loss are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. And we know that in the course of androgenetic hair loss, blood vessels are altered. A very nice study from this year showed that TGF-beta causes the delicate dermal papilla blood vessels in hair follicles to disappear, or as the authors stated in the JID article by Deng and colleagues, TGF-beta causes these dermal papilla blood vessels to vanish. And so there's this alteration in blood vessels in androgenetic hair loss, and the authors of that article propose that this is very relevant to androgenetic hair loss. These changes in blood vessels are very relevant to androgenetic hair loss. And so one of the ways to further identify what's happening in blood vessels and in the microcirculation is to examine the delicate nail fold capillaries in our fingers. There are several ways we can easily look at blood vessels in the human body. One is in the back of the eye, and so eye doctors and ophthalmologists are extremely skilled at seeing what's happening to blood vessels within seconds. But we can also see what's happening to blood vessels within seconds by looking at the nail fold capillaries in our fingers. And so you're well aware of the structure of the finger. We have the nail at the end and we have the finger. But what you may not be aware of is that we have these hairpin-like delicate blood vessels in the tips of the fingers just before the nail. And you can use a magnifying device called a dermatoscope to look at these blood vessels more readily. And dermatologists, rheumatologists frequently look at these blood vessels to identify certain types of autoimmune diseases, connective tissue diseases. We don't typically look at them in patients with androgenetic hair loss, but this study by Cowan colleagues reminds us that perhaps it's relevant for us to be looking at these blood vessels. So let's take a look at this really interesting study. 
These are the nail fold capillaries at the end of the finger. You can see the nail and the skin of the finger join up, and that is where these capillaries are found. They're shaped like hairpin type structures, and they're very regular. One, two, three, four, five, six. They're all lined up along the nail fold. So the authors of this study set out to investigate whether there are alterations in the nail fold capillaries in patients with androgenetic hair loss compared to controls. And in addition to examining the type of abnormality, they proposed a quantitative rating scale to score the abnormalities. A score of zero meant there were no changes. A score of one meant there was less than 33% capillary alterations or reduction. A score of two meant 33 to 66%, and a score of three meant there was more than 66% capillary alteration or reduction. So what was the key conclusion of this study? Well, the key conclusion is that the nail fold capillaries, these delicate little blood vessel structures, are altered in patients with androgenetic hair loss. There was a total of 78 men in this study diagnosed with androgenetic hair loss, and their capillary findings, their capillaroscopy, was compared to 78 age and sex match controls. There was a number of different blood vessel structures which were identified in addition to the typical hairpin structure. But what type of structures were more common in patients with androgenetic hair loss? What type of blood vessel findings were more common in the 78 men with androgenetic hair loss compared to controls? Well, there was five. Avascular appearing capillaries, bushy capillaries, bizarre dilated, and disorganized. Those were the five blood vessel structures which were more common in patients with androgenetic hair loss. Bushy capillaries were more common in androgenetic hair loss, and these are capillaries with many small branching limbs. Bizarre capillaries were increased in patients with androgenetic hair loss. These are capillaries with abnormal morphology. Dilated capillaries were more common as well. These are capillaries with a diameter of more than 20 micrometers. Disorganized capillaries are those with a complete distortion. And avascular areas are those areas with two or more successive areas lacking a capillary. And in the normal nail fold capillary, these blood vessels are lined up one, two, three, four, five in a very regular manner. And when they're missing, those are known as avascular areas. And so those were the five findings that were increased in patients with androgenetic hair loss. The androgenetic group also had a significantly higher frequency of nail fold capillary scores of two or more compared to the control group. And this reflects that a large proportion of the capillary network was affected in patients with androgenetic hair loss compared to controls. And so all in all, the authors proposed that Capillary abnormalities are much more common in androgenetic hair loss compared to controls. And what they propose is that there may be widespread microcirculation injury in androgenetic hair loss. Not only is androgenetic hair loss a hair thinning condition, but it is a condition associated with widespread microcirculation injury. We can even identify this microcirculation injury in the nail fold capillaries. And more research is needed to understand the significance of these changes and whether any of these changes can predict certain metabolic or cardiovascular sequelae. In other words, 
if one identifies disorganized capillaries, does that mean that a patient is more likely to develop metabolic syndrome? If a patient has avascular areas, is that more predictive of the development of some coronary artery type diagnosis? We don't know. But I think this study is really important because it identifies these five changes. Avascular areas, bushy, bizarre, dilated capillaries, and disorganized capillaries. And it fuels further research to understand what is the significance of this. And I really like this study because it reminds us that not only are we a field of hair loss, but we are a field of hair loss medicine. And we need to go beyond the hair follicle as practitioners in our specialty. That patients with androgenetic hair loss, for example, are at risk for metabolic syndrome. They are at risk for heart disease. And we will come back to this theme many times this evening, but I think that's so important. If we don't work to draw that connection, then we will really do our patients a, a disservice because it's up to us as hair loss practitioners to help make those connections. We may not be the ones that treat high blood pressure, high sugar, diabetes. We may not be the ones that treat the systemic issues, but we can be the ones that refer patients to those specialties. We can be the ones that help put the ball in motion. We can be the one that discusses with patients that I would like to test your cholesterol. I would like to test your blood sugars. I would like to do these tests because research has taught us that there's this connection. So we are a field of hair loss medicine. And all these systemic associations are so important. If there are blood vessel changes in the fingertips, these delicate capillaries in patients with androgenetic hair loss, it is relevant. And it's important for us to know about this. We move on now to study three and four, looking at the good cardiovascular safety of low-dose oral minoxidil. A very nice study by Sanabrian colleagues, followed by a very nice study by Jimenez Kahi and colleagues, looking at what happens to blood pressure, heart rate, in patients receiving low-dose oral minoxidil. First, we'll begin by Sanabria's study, published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology in May. Oral minoxidil is incredibly popular. If you look at Google Trends from 2017 to 2022, you can see that people are punching in the word oral minoxidil on the internet at increasing rates. And an article in the New York Times in the summer of 2022 heightened the awareness in many areas of the world, especially in North America, about oral minoxidil. And so the interest is quite great in oral minoxidil. Oral minoxidil was used in the 1970s and 80s to treat blood pressure at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 milligrams. Those were the typical doses. It was a challenging medication to use. It caused fluid retention around the heart, around the lungs. It caused increased heart rate. It caused dizziness, but it promoted hair growth. And so it was those observations which led to minoxidil being formulated as a topical product and that ultimately led to its approval for hair growth. There's been a resurgence of interest over the last five years in the use of low-dose oral minoxidil. 
But there have been several investigators over the last 10 and 15 years which have been studying this very carefully, including Dr. Rod Sinclair in Australia. And so the question that arises now is, if we're going to be using oral minoxidil at these low doses to try to get hair growing, is it safe? And what are the cardiovascular side effects? Do we get an increase in heart rate like we did in the 1970s and 80s when we were using 50 and 40 milligrams of minoxidil? Do we get these changes in blood pressure? After all, it's a blood pressure medication. So low-dose oral minoxidil is a dose of minoxidil 5 milligrams or less. Males with androgenetic hair loss are frequently treated with 2.5 to 5 milligrams. Females are typically treated with anywhere from 0.25 to 1.25. Some women are treated with 1.875, some with 2.5. But 1.25 and less are the more common doses in females. So Sanabria and colleagues wanted to ask the question, how much does low-dose oral minoxidil affect blood pressure? And so their study set out to determine how blood test results, blood pressure, heart rate change in males using oral minoxidil at 5 milligrams at baseline and then at week 24. And so it was a very nice study. Sanabri and colleagues connected patients with a Holter monitor to measure blood pressure, to measure heart rate. They did that at the beginning of the study and then again at week 24. And they measured heart rate and blood pressure over these 24-hour intervals. There was 34 males in the study. They were healthy males, age 21 to 58. They did not have cardiovascular disease, and I think that's so important, because these are studies of very healthy individuals. What were the findings? Well, the findings were pretty good. At 24 weeks, 20.6% of males reported they did have some headaches, 3% 3% had vertigo, 3% had edema, but no patient had shortness of breath, no patient had palpitations. 60%, approximately, 55.9, had increased hair on the body or hypertrichosis. There were no changes in lab tests, no patient had hypotension or a blood pressure less than 90 over 60 during the 24-hour monitoring period. The mean systolic awake blood pressure dropped from 125 to 122, so by 3 millimeters of mercury. The diastolic blood pressure dropped from 76 to 74. Overall, there was no change in mean heart rate at week 24 compared to the beginning of the study. There was no statistically significant increase in ventricular or extra uh, extrasystoles, either ventricular or supraventricular. This is a very much needed study in our field. This data about safety of oral minoxidil was very much needed. And I congratulate Sanabria and colleagues for bringing this study to our field. Oral minoxidil in males appears to be quite well tolerated in in this study. Systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure change very little. A single 5 milligram pill changes systolic blood pressure by 3 diastolic blood pressure by 2 millimeters of mercury. Is that a lot? Not really. When you sleep at night, your blood pressure changes by about 10 millimeters of mercury. When you exercise during the day, your blood pressure increases by anywhere from 10 millimeters to even 60 millimeters of mercury. So we have wide swings in our blood pressure 
in a given day. It could be 70 millimeters of mercury changes for some people. So these changes of 3 millimeters of mercury systolic and 2 millimeters of mercury diastolic are quite small. An occasional patient in this study did have tachycardia. Uh, it was 3% in this study. And that was a short interval where the heart rate did go above 100. So from this study, I developed what I use in my clinic called the 3-2-1 rule. And it's a memory tool which allows me to counsel patients. And that is that systolic blood pressure changes by 3 millimeters of mercury, diastolic by 2 with one 5 milligram pill of oral minoxidil in men. So that's a 3 2, one rule. And that's been very helpful for me as I counsel patients. Many patients want to know, is my blood pressure going to change? Am I going to get dizzy? Am I going to pass out? And this study reminds us that the changes in systolic and diastolic blood pressure are very small. Most patients don't develop a change in heart rate. There can be occasional dizziness, lightheaded tachycardia. So that's not impossible, but it's uncommon. So it's important to remember that this is a study of healthy males under age 60. It's not a study in women. It's not a study in those with cardiovascular disease. It's not a study in males over 60. And so we need those studies as well. But if you have a patient in front of you who's 35 years old, healthy, wants to start oral minoxidil, this study is applicable. If you have a patient in front of you who's 68 years old, has high blood pressure, this study does not apply. And so we need additional studies to further enhance our confidence in using oral minoxidil. But this is a wonderful study. Him and his and colleagues published a similar type of study looking at the cardiovascular safety of oral minoxidil, 5 milligrams. The question here is, does 5 milligrams of oral minoxidil affect blood pressure and heart rate in healthy males? Similar question as Sanabria and colleagues, isn't it? They studied 10 patients. Patients were assessed with ambulatory blood pressure monitoring every 20 minutes for a period of 24 hours on two different days. What were those two different days? Well, it wasn't time zero in week 24, like Sanabria's study. It was time zero, and then right after they started the tablet. And so the following parameters were calculated every two hours before taking the tablet and after taking the tablet. Systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, and heart rate. Total of 10 patients were in the study, so we had 20 measurements before and after at each of these two-hour time points. Mean age of patients was 27, ranging from 24 to 32. That's important to be aware of. This is not a study of 68-year-old males. It's not a study of 58-year-old males. It's not a study of 48-year-old males. Mean age 27.8, range 24 to 32. Important data. There was no statistically significant difference at baseline and at hour 24 in the mean diastolic blood pressure, systolic blood pressure, or heart rate. The only change was at two hours after taking the tablet. Two hours after the five milligram dose, there was a non-significant change in systolic blood pressure. So it was not statistically significant but there was a statistically significant decrease in diastolic blood pressure from 76.7 to 71.9. No significant changes in heart rate. So the differences only occurred at that two-hour time point. There was no differences at hour 4, 8, 12, 24. 
None of the 10 patients had tachycardia or increased heart rate. But what was interesting in this study is that patients that had high blood pressure at the beginning were the ones that had the biggest drops in blood pressure with oral minoxidil. One patient had a bit of lightheadedness at one hour after taking the tablet and it resolved spontaneously. So a very nice study. Jimenez Kahi performing a second very important oral minoxidil safety study, very similar to Sanabria's study. The conclusions here is that low-dose oral minoxidil appears to have minimal effects on blood pressure. There can be slight changes in the diastolic measurement at two hours, but then it returns to normal. Patients did not show evidence of tachycardia. The authors conclude here that patients with high blood pressure may be the individuals that experience a bit of a drop in blood pressure with low-dose oral minoxidil. And so certainly we'll need more studies about the safety of oral minoxidil in patients with high blood pressure. The basic tenant in the field is that if you have normal blood pressure, 120 over 80, 115 over 75, that oral minoxidil has minimal effects on blood pressure. If you have high blood pressure, low-dose oral minoxidil may lower it and has larger effects on blood pressure. So in healthy individuals, low-dose oral minoxidil has minimal effects on the cardiovascular system. Some patients could be lightheaded. That doesn't mean they need to abandon this treatment. It means one needs to monitor. Sometimes lightheadedness goes away, never returns again. It's a one-time thing, more likely in the beginning of, of the treatment plan than long-term. It doesn't necessarily mean a patient needs to stop. So I thank these authors for these very nice studies looking at the cardiovascular safety of oral minoxidil. Sanabria's study and Jimenez-Kahi's study is so important to our field to give us the confidence to use this medication in a safe manner. It's important to understand the limitations, the age group studied, but th these two studies will fuel additional studies in this area. We move now to three very nice studies by my colleague, Dr. Gupta, looking first at the relative efficacy of minoxidil, finasteride, and dutasteride in patients with androgenetic alopecia. So if you're asked to rank the efficacy of dutasteride, finasteride, topical minoxidil, oral minoxidil, how do you put them in order? Well, that's what Dr. Gupta set out to do. Which treatment wins first prize? Which wins second? Which wins third? So the authors examined the relative efficacy of any dose and administration route of minoxidil, dutasteride, finasteride. They performed a systematic review and meta-analysis of all the studies published in the literature. The key endpoints they were interested in looking at is the change in total and terminal hair counts at week 24 and 48. They found a lot of good data for week 24, limited data for week 48, and we'll come back to that in a minute. And they pulled from the literature studies that looked at minoxidil, dutasteride, finasteride as monotherapy. So there was 23 studies that they found. 11 pertained to 2% minoxidil. 8 pertained to 1 milligram of finasteride. So those were the majority of the studies retrieved. 3 were with dutasteride. 2 were with 5% minoxidil. 1 was with oral minoxidil. 1 was with 0.25 milligrams of oral minoxidil. And 2 were with topical finasteride. What was the conclusion? Conclusion is that dutasteride, 0.5 milligrams, is the winner. Not surprising. We know that in the year 2022 that dutasteride is 
the most effective treatment for androgenetic hair loss. And it's pretty difficult with the data we have right now to refute that. Gupta's study suggests that the second place winner is oral finasteride 5 milligrams, not one, but five. And the third place winner is oral minoxidil 5 milligrams. A very nice study, some surprises. Many patients of mine in the past have said, I think I do better with five milligrams of oral finasteride than one. And my feeling has always been that the literature tells us that you should be the same on five milligrams as one milligram. No, no, doc, I think I'm doing much better on five milligrams. This study suggests that indeed those patients are right. And I found that very interesting. I think there's data here that supports that for some patients, five milligrams will be superior to one milligram. What is also surprising is that oral minoxidil five milligrams finds a place at the top of the list as the, as the most effective treatments for androgenetic hair loss, right up there with dutasteride and oral finasteride. I think that's really, really important data. And so the rank order is oral dutasteride, oral finasteride five, oral minoxidil five, oral finasteride one, topical minoxidil 5%, topical minoxidil 2%. Dr. Gupta reminds us in this study that the overall quality of evidence is low. These studies have significant limitations. There's a lot of data at week 24, not a lot of data at week 48. Investigators like to do studies and stop them at week 24. That's six months. Going to 48 weeks, almost a year, that's expensive. That takes time. That takes resources. So a lot of studies stop at week 24, so we don't have a lot of great data at week 48, and that's a limitation. Most of these studies are with finasteride 1 milligram and topical minoxidil. Very limited studies with oral minoxidil, dutasteride, and again, limited studies at week 48. The data doesn't apply to females. The data doesn't apply to young patients. The data doesn't apply to old patients. So if a 15-year-old male is in the clinic, and the patient or the parent says, what's the most effective treatment for androgenetic hair loss? You cannot pull up the Gupta meta-analysis and say, I've got a wonderful study for you, which suggests that oral dutasteride is the most effective treatment, followed by oral finasteride 5, followed by oral minoxidil 5. That data does not apply to this age group. So we can't make those conclusions. It's tempting, but you can't. And so we need to understand these limitations. And this data, again has limitations in the quality of evidence, but it's a really wonderful study, carefully designed, carefully conducted, and really draws some important conclusions that give some guidance in terms of how we rank the hierarchy of treatments. Dr. Gupta also performed a very nice study looking at platelet-rich plasma and how we should be performing platelet-rich plasma procedures. Who does it work best in? Who does it work less well in? So PRP is a recognized treatment for androgenetic hair loss. It's not FDA approved. The FDA doesn't want to regulate it because it is a product that comes from the person's own blood. And so the FDA has said in that case that it really doesn't want to be involved in the regulation. And on account of that, there are many, many protocols. There are many machines. There are many ways of taking the blood. There are many ways of activating the blood. There are way, many ways of spinning the blood. There are many things that can be added. And there are easily 500 different protocols. If you were to add them all up, there's probably 2,000 or 3,000 different protocols. 
and so it's really not clear how best to perform PRP. So what protocol is best? Well, the authors set out to perform a study to look at what treatment protocols might be best and which ones might not be quite as good. So they performed a multivariable meta-regression and network meta-analysis, a method of looking at the data and drawing conclusions from all of the data as to what might work best. 25 trials met their eligibility criteria. There was 10 unique PRP regimens that were ultimately used in their calculations. What are the best protocols? Well, patients that have more PRP sessions or come in the clinic more often seem to do better than patients that come into the clinic less often. So if you have two patients in the waiting room and one says, in 2021, I came in twice for PRP. And the other patient says, ah, I came in eight times. The patient who came in eight times probably will do better with their hair. Now, there's other factors as well. But that's the first variable that's so important from Dr. Gupta's study, that if you come in more often, you have more treatments, you probably have better results. If you activate the PRP, and PRP can be activated in many ways, including with calcium, it seems to work better than if you don't activate the PRP. If you use a centrifuge, which allows for a double centrifugation method, it probably works better. PRP seems to work better in patients that are younger than older, and patients that are female than patients that are male. Does PRP work in male patients? Of course. Does PRP work in someone 65 compared to 35? Of course. But this data suggests that it works slightly better in patients that are female, patients that are younger, and if the PRP is activated and processed with a double centrifugation method. So a really nice study. Studies of PRP are generally quite small. Studies of PRP are generally very poorly designed. It's a major effort to pull data from the PRP literature and analyze it with some rigorous methodology. Studies in PRP are notoriously very poor. But this data gives us some insight into what type of parameters may be the most helpful. And I think this study will indeed fuel other studies. I don't think this study provides us with a, with a guideline that moving forward in 2023, we should do PRP with this methodology, this methodology, this methodology, because of Gupta et al. 2022. No, I don't think so, but it certainly is extremely helpful to get us a little closer to speaking about what type of protocols may be the best. There truly are hundreds and hundreds of different protocols. The way someone performs PRP up the street is different than the way they perform PRP down the street. And if someone says to me, I went up the street, I didn't get a good result. Should I go down the street and do PRP? My feeling is, it's worth a shot. It probably won't work if you didn't get a result up the street. But we don't know if the people up the street activated the PRP the same way that the people down the street activated. We don't know what centrifuge the people up the street used compared to down the street. And so we desperately need a little bit more consensus in how we do PRP, and that's so important. There are hundreds upon hundreds of different procedures to do PRP. And so it's unfortunate we use the term PRP because we really should be saying PRP method 87.47B, North America dash, Denver dash, West Denver dash, Clinic 47 dash. There's just so many protocols. 
Dr. Gupta and colleagues performed another very nice study looking at what happens when you increase the dose of oral minoxidil? Does it work better? And if it works better, do you get more side effects? Or does it just work better? So what happens when you increase the dose of oral minoxidil by one milligram? So Dr. Gupta set out to determine the safety and efficacy of oral minoxidil. They performed a systematic review of the literature and found six studies that were eligible for their analysis. So what happens when you increase the dose of oral minoxidil one milligram? Well, after six months of use, increasing the dose of low-dose oral minoxidil in patients with androgenetic hair loss is associated with an increase in hair diameter of 1.4 micrometers, an increase in hair density of 47 hairs per centimeter squared, and an increase in terminal hair density of 9.1 hairs per centimeter squared. After six months of use in patients with androgenetic hair loss, increasing the dose of oral minoxidil by one milligram increases the risk of hypertrichosis by 17.9%, and it increases the risk of cardiovascular adverse events by 5%. Things like hypotension, edema, increased heart rate palpitations, or an abnormal EKG. A really important study telling us that the risks and benefits of oral minoxidil are dose dependent. So when a patient comes into clinic and says, I've been doing really well on 2.5 milligrams of oral minoxidil. Hair's coming back. I'm so pleased. Don't have any side effects. What do you think, doc, if we increase it by a milligram? Well, we can now say to that patient, you will likely have an increase in hair density of X amount of hairs per centimeter squared, 47. You will have an increase in nine hairs per centimeter squared that are terminal. But if we go up by one milligram, you have a 1 in 20 chance of cardiovascular effects, meaning you have a 1 in 20 chance of coming back and saying to me, I have palpitations, I have dizziness. And you have an 18% chance of coming back and saying, you know what, it's helping my scalp, but I've got more hair on my chest, on my body, on my back, on my arms, on my legs. And so if that's something that you don't like, then we have to weigh those risks and benefits. So a really important study, which gives us some numbers, gives us some ability to improve the counseling we do to patients. And I think this study is immensely helpful. It's something that I think about almost daily when I'm counseling patients that are thinking about going up on oral minoxidil. A very nice study from New York by Klein and colleagues looked at whether adding topical minoxidil to someone about to start oral minoxidil really does anything study published in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology. So if you're planning to start oral minoxidil, are you wasting your time and money by starting topical minoxidil too? That's what Klein and colleagues set out to look at. A first-of-its-kind type study, a study with several limitations, but nevertheless an intriguing study which gets us thinking, a study which gets us thinking that perhaps if we're going to prescribe oral minoxidil we should just leave topical minoxidil out of the plan. So the authors aim to compare the therapeutic outcomes of patients treated with oral minoxidil compared to patients treated with oral minoxidil and topical minoxidil. So we have two groups, two groups of patients, a low-dose oral minoxidil alone group and an oral minoxidil and topical minoxidil group. Small study, 117 patients, 
Patients had mostly androgenetic hair loss, but some had androgenetic hair loss and telogen effluvium. Some had androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata, but most had androgenetic hair loss, and I think that's what's important here to remember. Everyone was treated with low-dose oral minoxidil, but 60% of patients had low-dose oral minoxidil and topical minoxidil twice daily, the combo group. Oral minoxidil was prescribed in various doses. Most patients had 1.25 and 2.5 milligrams. A very small number had 0.625 milligrams. And very few patients at all were prescribed 5 milligrams. So here in North America, oral minoxidil comes as 2.5 milligram tablets. And so they can be broken in half or in a quarter. And that's why in North America, Patients are frequently prescribed 0.625, which is a quarter, 1.25, which is a half, 1.875, which is three quarters, or 2.5, which is a full pill. In other parts of Europe, etc., the pills may come as 5 milligrams. Some parts of the world, they come as 10 milligrams. And so patients were assessed at three to six month intervals, low-dose oral minoxidil and the low-dose oral minoxidil topical minoxidil combo group, both had an increase in density and an increase in hair caliber. But the key point is that the increase in density and hair caliber were exactly the same. It was not that the combo group of oral minoxidil and bonus topical minoxidil worked better. Not at all. The groups performed very similarly. So there was no real added benefit of adding topical minoxidil in this small study of 117 patients. And so most patients using oral minoxidil would not be expected to get much more benefit from adding topical minoxidil to the plan. So if you're planning to start oral minoxidil, are you wasting your time and money by starting topical minoxidil too? The study suggests yes. I think this study needs replicating by other groups. I think this study needs further investigation, but I think it's extremely intriguing. And I congratulate Klein and colleagues for this wonderful study. I think it's so important for us to really understand this information. This is a small study. The authors included patients with many types of hair loss, so it wasn't just androgenetic hair loss, but most patients did have androgenetic hair loss, and so it certainly is suggestive, but it's challenging to tease apart differences when you have different types of hair loss. Males and females were included in this study. Could there be differences in males and females? There could be, and so it may be important to investigate these studies in males alone or females alone. And we don't know if patients using really small doses of oral minoxidil, like 0.25, are likely to benefit if you add topical minoxidil. Only 18% of patients in this study were on 0.625 milligrams, so low doses. And clearly, if you were to start a patient on 0.000000001 milligrams of oral minoxidil, it's probably going to be beneficial to add topical minoxidil. That's just a hypothetical scenario. But clearly, if you're on a low enough dose of oral minoxidil, then yes, it probably will benefit you to have topical minoxidil on board too. So what is the cutoff? We don't know. Is adding topical minoxidil in a female patient using 0.25 milligrams of oral minoxidil helpful? Well, we don't know. The studies studied mainly 1.25 and 2.5 milligram users. Some were 0.625, but not many. 
So if you're on low doses of oral minoxidil, should you be on topical minoxidil too to get extra kick? Maybe. This study didn't address that, but it's an intriguing study. It sets the stage for further good studies, and I congratulate these authors. This is really, really important. What this study does not suggest in any way, shape, or form is that if a patient comes into clinic and they're on oral minoxidil and they're on topical minoxidil and they say to you, I just heard this study that I'm wasting my time and money by using this topical minoxidil. I don't like applying it. It's messy. It's goopy. It changes my hair. I don't have time. I don't like topical minoxidil. I want to stop it. I've heard that it makes no difference. This is not a study which addresses whether stopping topical minoxidil in someone on long-term combo therapy is a good idea or not. This is a study, the Klein and colleague study, which addresses what happens from starting. If you're about to start oral minoxidil, should you add topical minoxidil at the same time, on day one, when your plan is underway? That's what this study is about. And so if a patient's on long-term oral minoxidil and topical minoxidil therapy, I would be pretty leery about stopping their topical minoxidil until we have good data. It absolutely is possible that patient could lose hair on account of that. And so more studies are needed, but I congratulate the authors. This is a wonderful study, which really gets us thinking about how we should be using topical and oral minoxidil together. And finally, study number nine in the category of androgenetic hair loss is a study of female pattern hair loss looking at microneedling compared to oral spironolactone in patients using minoxidil. So microneedling is very popular. It involves the use of small needles, 0 0.2, 0 0.5, 1 millimeter, 1.5 millimeters in size, and the scalp is purposely injured to create a small wound. And the hope is that that wound stimulates hair follicle stem cells and stimulates pathways that lead to hair growth. It's not fully understood why microneedling would help hair. It's thought that perhaps it promotes activation of the Wnt beta catenin signaling pathway, and that stimulates dermal papilla stem cells. Perhaps it stimulates angiogenesis. Perhaps if you put minoxidil on the scalp and you do microneedling, perhaps it allows the minoxidil to get in the scalp easier by creating these little microchannels. And perhaps microneedling increases minoxidil sulfotransferase enzymes, which then converts minoxidil into the active form more readily. But the mechanisms are still debated. Why does this microneedling technique work? Does it work in everyone? Are there patients by which it actually worsens the whole situation? Probably. We need more research. If you're going to speak about microneedling, you need to be pretty well versed about a fundamental landmark study by Durat and colleagues in the International Journal of Trichology in 2013. Durat and colleagues performed a randomized study looking at the benefits of minoxidil compared to minoxidil and microneedling. 44 patients in the minoxidil-only group, 50 patients in the minoxidil and microneedling group. So patients in the microneedling group were microneedling weekly with a 1.5 millimeter microneedle. What worked best? Well, the minoxidil microneedling protocol worked better. Patients thought it was significantly better. Investigators looking at pictures thought that the combo group did much better, had better results, and hair growth was much better in the combo group. 
So Durat and colleagues is a really important study to know about and was indeed a study that launched studies like the one I'm about to mention to you today. So Liang and colleagues set out to perform a similar study with a few slight differences. So it set out to determine whether adding microneedling to a topical minoxidil plan worked better than oral spironolactone and topical minoxidil, and whether any of this worked better than just doing topical minoxidil alone. And so they performed a prospective, single-center, randomized trial of 120 premenopausal women with female pattern hair loss. There was three groups, minoxidil 5% once daily, minoxidil 5% once daily with microneedling every two weeks with a 0.7 to 1 millimeter microneedle, compared to minoxidil 5% once daily with oral spironolactone, 80 to 100 milligrams. Oral spironolactone is an anti-androgen used for many, many years in the treatment of androgenetic hair loss. It's used off-label for women. So the authors looked at changes in hair density, hair diameter, physician global assessment. What did physicians think about the, the final results? Patient evaluation. What did patients think about the results? And side effects. So the criteria for participating in this trial was you had to be between 18 and 45 years of age, female, have normal hormone levels, and be a Sinclair class 2 or 3, not 4 and not 5. So early moderate androgenetic hair loss. How was microneedling done? Well, it was done every two weeks. Patients washed their hair before treatment. Alcohol was used to clean the site three times. One milliliter of minoxidil was applied. And then microneedling was done with this 0.7 to 1 millimeter microneedle. Patients were advised not to wash their hair for eight hours and not to use additional minoxidil for 24 hours. So what were the results? 115 patients in the study started with 120, but five dropped out. 38 in the minoxidil-only group, 37 in the minoxidil-spiral group, and 40 in the minoxidil-microneedling group. Who was the winner? Minoxidil-microneedling. The minoxidil protocol with microneedling every two weeks with that 0.7 to 1 millimeter microneedle was more effective than minoxidil-spironolactone. That was the second place, and both of those were better than minoxidil alone. There's an increase in hair density the most in the minoxidil microneedling group. Hair shaft diameter increased in all groups, and there was no significant difference. The diameter increased by about 15 micrometers. When investigators were asked to look at photos at week 24, in the minoxidil-only group, an improvement was noted in 55% of patients. An improvement was noted in about 86% of patients in the minoxidil-spiral group, and in 95% of patients in the minoxidil-microneedling group. So what were the side effects? Well, scalp itching was the most common side effect. The minoxidil-spironolactone group reported the most adverse events. Of the 40 patients in that group, 15 had irregular periods, hyperkalemia in one patient, edema of the limbs in one patient. There was one infection in the microneedling group. It was short-term and didn't cause the patient to stop treatment. So a really nice study showing the superiority of microneedling 
and minoxidil compared to minoxidil spironolactone. Side effects were less in the minoxidil microneedling group compared to the minoxidil spiral group. Would a combination of all three treatments work even better? Would a combination of microneedling with oral spironolactone with microneedling minoxidil work, work the best? We don't know. A really intriguing study suggesting superiority of microneedling over spironolactone, very slightly, but much better tolerated in females with androgenetic hair loss. Very, very nice study, which builds on the Durat study of 2013 and fuels further study and investigation in the role of microneedling. Microneedling is a really important topic. Patients are using microneedling, using home microneedling, office microneedling, 0.6 millimeter microneedles, 1.5, doing it every four days, every 10 days, every two weeks. There's extremely large number of protocols and we really need more research to understand how this can be used best. So we move from androgenetic hair loss to studies of alopecia areata. Alopecia areata is an autoimmune disease which affects between 1 and 2% of individuals in their lifetime. It can cause a patch of hair loss which then grows back. It can cause hair loss that extends the entire scalp which is called alopecia totalis or the scalp and eyebrows, eyelashes, body hair, and that's called alopecia universalis. And the treatment depends on the degree of hair loss. And so when someone says to me, how do you treat alopecia areata? My question back to that individual is, what is the stage of alopecia areata? How much hair loss does the patient have? If a patient has a single patch of hair loss, I may treat it with topical steroids, steroid injections, and minoxidil. If a patient has alopecia universalis, Topical steroids, steroid injections, and minoxidil is not going to help, and we need systemic treatments. So Dr. King and colleagues published a very nice study in the New England Journal looking at the role of baricitinib in advanced alopecia areata. These were the findings from the BRAVE AA1 and BRAVE AA2 trials, which were the trials which ultimately led to the FDA approval of baricitinib for alopecia areata on June 13th, 2022, a really monumentous day in the hair loss field where baricitinib was approved for alopecia areata up until June 13th. We did not have any formally approved treatments for alopecia areata. We had dozens upon dozens of off-label treatments, but no formally FDA-approved treatments. And so Dr. King and colleagues performed the BRAVE AA1 and AA2 trials, which allowed baricitinib to be approved. So baricitinib is a JAK inhibitor. It's a JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor. Tofacitinib, which you may be familiar with, is a JAK1, JAK3 inhibitor. And baricitinib was approved June 13th for advanced alopecia areata. And it's the data that I'm about to share with you now that convinced the FDA that approval was a good idea. The BRAVE AA1 and AA2 were randomized, placebo-controlled trials involving patients with severe alopecia areata with a SALT score of 50 or higher. Patients were randomized to receive either a placebo tablet or baricitinib, 2 milligrams, or baricitinib, 4 milligrams. And patients were randomized in a 3 to 2 to 2 design, meaning slightly more patients received baricitinib 4 milligrams than 2 milligram group or placebo group, but there were three groups that were studied. The primary outcome was what proportion of patients had a SALT score of 20 or less 
at week 36 at the approximately nine-month mark. There were a number of secondary outcomes. How did patients' eyebrows and eyelashes improve? How many patients achieved a SALT score of 10 or less? So there was other secondary outcomes, but the primary outcome was what proportion of patients had a SALT score of 20 or less. So what's a SALT score? A SALT score of 100 means no hair on the scalp. A SALT score of 0 means complete hair growth. And so a SALT score of 20 is the primary endpoint of the study. What percent of patients had this SALT score of 20 or less? So not complete hair growth, but what percent of patients had some pretty cosmetically important regrowth? They may still have had hair loss, but the SALT score of 20 was used as the cosmetically significant regrowth density. So the BRAVE AA1 enrolled a total of 598 patients at the end. There was more enrolled initially, but about 10% were unable to complete the trial. The BRAVE AA2 had about 490 patients in the final group. What's so important about the BRAVE AA1 and AA2 studies is that a significant number of patients had alopecia universalis, so complete hair loss, very high number, which is really important. It is very difficult to promote hair growth in alopecia universalis, and so if a treatment promotes hair growth in alopecia universalis, it's really important. Most patients had a duration of hair loss of about 3.6 years in the BRAVE AA1, 4.3 years in the BRAVE AA2. 30 to 40% of patients had alopecia areata for more than four years. 60% approximately were white, 30 to 40% Asian, 7 to 10% were black. How well did baricitinib work? What percentage of patients achieved that SALT score of 20 or less? Was it 5%, 15%, 35%, half, 80%? Well, it was 35%. So just over a third of patients achieved a SALT score of 20 or less at that week 36 mark. In the 4 milligram group, the BRAVE AA1 data showed that it was around 38.8% of patients achieved that, 359 in the BRAVE AA2 group. In the placebo group, about 6% in the BRAVE AA1 achieved a SALT score of 20 or less, and it was 3.3 in the BRAVE AA2. And that's really important data. We need those good placebos in these studies. The placebo response in alopecia areata is not insignificant. But in total, about a third of patients had some very good results with 4 milligrams of baricitinib. And baricitinib, 4 milligrams worked better than 2 milligrams. What percent of patients achieved a SALT score of 10 or less? Even better hair growth. Well, it was about 25% achieved that density. Side effects were generally mild to moderate in most patients, but not all. The percent of patients that dropped out of the study, that 10%, was similar in the placebo group, similar in the 2 milligram, and similar in the 4 milligram group. There were some adverse events in both the BRAVE AA1 and BRAVE AA2 study. There was acne in about 6% of patients, respiratory and tract infections, headaches, urinary tract infections, increased cholesterol, about 25% had some increased cholesterol numbers compared to about 15% in the placebo, increased creatinine kinase. Herpes zoster or shingles occurred in about 0.5-0.7% of patients, just a little bit higher than the placebo um, in the BRAVE A2 trial. So it wasn't a lot of patients, but a small number uh, had shingles infections. 
Serious adverse events occurred in 2.1% with the 4 milligram dose, compared to 1.6% in the placebo group in the BRAVE A1. In the BRAVE A2 trial, 3.4% had serious adverse events with 4 milligrams, compared to 1.9 in the placebo. And overall, baricitinib 4 milligrams was better than 2 milligrams, and 2 milligrams was better than placebo. And one third of patients achieved good results. So really important study, really important study which led to the FDA approval of baricitinib. Baricitinib along with other JAK inhibitors come with this black box warning. And the FDA has said that right now, if you're going to manufacture a JAK inhibitor of similar kind, that we're going to attach this black box warning to the JAK inhibitors. And that is we need to remind patients about the possibility of serious infections, higher mortality or death, higher risk of cancer, higher risk of cardiovascular events, higher risk of blood clots. And these black box warnings come from studies of rheumatoid arthritis patients. And these are data from the oral surveillance trial, which looked at side effects in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, 50 years of age and over, who were receiving tofacitinib and methotrexate. And in that oral surveillance trial, the data suggested that patients may have an increased risk of infections, cancer, heart disease, blood clots. And so the FDA has said that we're going to put this warning on all the JAK inhibitors for now. A major effort in the next few years will be understanding whether this black box warning is really relevant to other groups outside of rheumatoid arthritis. And we're beginning to get some data that suggests that if you're using a JAK inhibitor for other disease states, like atopic dermatitis, like vitiligo, like alopecia areata, that this data may not apply in the same way as it does in rheumatoid arthritis. We're not sure completely, because studies are small. Follow-up is limited. The BRAVE A1 and A2 are just 36 weeks in length. But it may not be that the risks that we see in rheumatoid arthritis patients 50 years of age and over who are on tofacitinib and methotrexate have the same risk as a 22-year-old patient with alopecia areata who is on a JAK inhibitor like baricitinib. So we don't know. But for now, the FDA has said this warning needs to be placed on the product. And before a patient starts, they need to be counseled about the possibility of infections, cancer, cardiovascular, and blood clots. But we're not sure if truly these side effects apply to our patient population with alopecia areata. And so we'll be seeing a lot more data in the years to come looking at whether these side effects are relevant to our hair loss-specific populations. Another very nice study in the alopecia areata field was a study from Poland by Waskiel Bernat and colleagues, Lydia Runika's group. A very nice study looking at the risk of endothelial dysfunction in patients with alopecia areata. A large body of data is accumulating suggesting that patients with alopecia areata are at increased risk for heart disease. And so Dr. Waskiel Bernat and colleagues set out to look at whether patients with alopecia areata have blood vessel abnormalities, endothelial dysfunction that could explain an increased risk for heart disease. Now, before we dive into Waskiel Burnett's study, let's take a look at a 
landmark 2020 study of alopecia areata is by Connick and colleagues from the Cleveland Clinic titled Prevalence of Cardiac and Metabolic Diseases Among Patients with Alopecia Areata. That study, published in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology, showed that there was an increased risk of high blood pressure, obesity, hyperlipidemia, metabolic syndrome, heart disease, stroke, in patients with alopecia areata compared to controls. And so Waskil Bernat and colleagues set out to determine if the blood vessels are different in patients with alopecia areata. Is there dysfunction of the blood vessel lining called the endothelium in patients with alopecia areata? And these are healthy patients without cardiovascular disease. And so they enrolled 52 patients with alopecia areata, 38 female, 14 male, and compared the data to 34 matched controls, matched for age, sex, and body mass. So how do you measure endothelial dysfunction? How do you measure if the lining of the endothelium is working properly or not? Well, there's some very easy ways to do it. And one such device is called the Endopat 2000 device, a device where you sit in a chair in an office, you have a blood pressure cuff hooked up to your arm, and you have a probe at the end of your finger. You inflate the cuff to shut off the blood supply temporarily, and then you let the blood rush into the finger, and you measure how quickly the blood rushes to the finger, the waveforms, you measure how the, the blood vessels respond. And from that, you can get measures of endothelial dysfunction very readily. This number pops up on a computer. And you can get the reactive hyperemia index, RHI, and you can get a measure of arterial stiffness called the augmentation index. And so by calculating RHI, the reactive hyperemia index, the researchers showed that endothelial dysfunction, or an RHI number less than 1.67, was observed in 42% of patients with alopecia areata, compared to just 12% of controls, and this was statistically significant. There was no significant difference in the augmentation index. So to cardiologists, the RHI and the augmentation index are really important numbers. So if a patient comes in clinic, sits in a chair, has one of these devices, the blood pressure and the probe on the finger, and they get this measurement that pops up on the computer screen. You have an RHI of 1.44. It means that patient is at increased risk for heart disease. It's a predictor of cardiovascular disease. And it's a really important number to cardiologists. We don't think about it in the hair clinic. It's not something that we deal with. But it is quite easy to measure these numbers. And so the authors here show that these measures of endothelial dysfunction are different in patients with alopecia areata, that there is evidence that the blood vessels are, are abnormal in healthy patients without cardiovascular disease. I think this is a really important study. Again, we're moving away from thinking about hair diseases as isolated hair diseases of hair follicles. Of course, that's what we focus on in the clinic, but these hair loss issues have systemic implications that patients with alopecia areata have an increased risk for heart disease. Patients with androgenetic hair loss have an increased risk for heart disease. We'll see in a minute that patients with lichen planopilaris have these risks as well. So what type of screening should we be doing in patients with alopecia areata? In a patient with alopecia areata, should we be measuring their baseline blood pressure? Should we be measuring their cholesterol? Should we be measuring their body mass index? Should we be looking at their diet? Should we be looking at their exercise 
protocols and how much they exercise? Should we be looking at stress in their life? Should we be taking family histories of heart disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol? The answer is probably yes. But we're not there yet. We saw earlier that it was 50 years ago that we first identified a relationship between male balding and heart disease. And we don't talk about male balding and heart disease in a typical visit regarding male balding. And that was 50 years ago. And here we have this wonderful study by Dr. Westgill Bernat and colleagues reminding us of this important association that builds upon Connick's study in 2020. These are very important associations. And I think that we shouldn't wait another 50 years before we do something about it. I think we need to move forward with thinking about screening and thinking more carefully about these important associations. But I really like this study. Waskil Burnett, Dr. Rudnika's group really have highlighted this important association that alopecia areata is associated with endothelial dysfunction and androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata are associated with metabolic dysfunction and that increases the risk for heart disease. I hope you enjoyed this part one of the podcast. Join us next for part two of the podcast. This podcast here pertained to nine studies in androgenetic hair loss, two in alopecia areata, and I hope you found these interesting. We reviewed a variety of different research studies which are really changing how we think about androgenetic hair loss and how we think about alopecia areata. In the next podcast episode, you'll hear the final nine studies. Enjoy this webinar. Thanks again.